here. Uh, hope that you've enjoyed your meal and your fellowship. Uh, I was told last time I didn't turn the lights on up here and I wasn't illuminated well enough. Uh, have I, is, it, is it okay now? Do I have, okay, I don't think I need to turn anything on. Um, apparently some people were having trouble seeing me, I don't know, but um, I think we're good. We're good for today. Psalm 14 is our passage uh, today. Psalm 8 was last week, Psalm 14 this week, Psalm 19 next week, FYI. Uh, you may be wondering, what are the, what's the connection between these three? <clears throat> well, 8 and 19, there is certainly a connection. 14 kind of fits in with this idea of true spirituality that John has uh, been taking us through this fall. Uh, and so I want to continue that idea uh, this morning. <clears throat> Not this morning, this afternoon. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would, put, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this food you have provided us with. Thank you for this time of fellowship and encouragement. Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Would you make it real to us? And that we would not just love you with our mouths, but we would love you with our affections and with our actions. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> the Apostle Paul references this psalm in Romans chapter 3. He references it to talk about the depravity of mankind. He tells us in Romans 3 verses 9 through 18 just how bad we are as sinful people, just how rebellious we are. That it's not that we're a little bit sick or we're just kind of struggling, that we are truly dead in our trespasses and sins, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2. This passage in Romans 3 that I mentioned is where we get the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity means, total, well, first of all, total depravity doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we possibly could be, that the Lord in his common grace restrains evil in this world. So we could be more sinful than we are. But total depravity means that our sinfulness has permeated every single part of who we are. We often think of sinning as actions we commit, things that we do. It, it includes that. But sinfulness is also about our thoughts. It's about our affections, about our words that we use. It's, it's much deeper. And so total depravity says that sin of mankind has affected all, every bit of who you are. There is nothing that it has not touched. <laughs> it's as if we were... I had two cups of water sitting up here on the podium right now, and I had some red food coloring in my hand. And I put one drop of red food coloring into one cup, and then I put the whole bottle of the red food coloring into the other cup of water. Now, which cup of water is going to be red? Both of them are, right? 
One's just going to be a little bit more red than the other. <laughs> sin, of course, the red food coloring obviously representing sin. Sin permeates all of us. We, some of us may just do more bad stuff than the other, right? No one's more, no one's better than another. The total depravity may have just run deeper in someone than someone else. Total depravity, by definition, is since the fall, humans are enslaved to sin and by nature bent toward evil in every part of who they are. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, By this sin, they, Adam and Eve, fell from original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Again, this passage in, in in agreement with Romans chapter 3, says that we are totally or radically, if you will, depraved. It's We're sinful. We're rebellious. We have not done and we continue not to do what God asks of us. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17 verse 9 asks this question. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You look around the world and this is validated, is it not? How could that person have done that? How could these people do this? And so forth and so on. How could I have decided to hurt someone the way that I did? You don't need necessarily to be convinced of the sinfulness of man. What you may need to be convinced of is just how deeply it actually runs in your own heart. This is who fallen man is apart from God. We have no ability to turn to him, and things will be far worse if the Lord just totally removed his hand away from us. So David in this psalm is describing specifically what it means that man is depraved. I really did pick a great uplifting psalm for today at lunch, right? Uh, But we end on a very positive note. So here's the proposition. Because man is depraved, which we will look at in three ways, we must preach boldly and prophetically to our culture. We've got to tell them this is the issue. This is the problem. You're depraved. And at the same time, thank God for overcoming our own depravity as Christians and giving us a new heart, one that has affections for him. So number one, the depraved man, in the first sense, denies God. We see that in the first part of verse one. The fool hath said, is the way it begins, or the fool says in his heart, maybe your version says. The Hebrew word for fool here is nabal, all right? If you uh, are familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's a character in the Bible named Nabal, and he was most certainly a foolish man. This word doesn't mean, we often use the word fool, we say somebody's stupid or incompetent. That's not how the Bible uses the term fool. It means perverse or vile or against God. God is wise, he's all-knowing, he's perfect. To do something against God would be foolish, or someone should be called a fool. But notice how the fool says there is no God. He's not standing on a mountaintop proclaiming it, shouting it, trying to convince others that it's true. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. He is not the Richard Dawkins or the Sam Harris of our day, the ones that write books and outwardly exclaim there is no God, though they're certainly in view here. It's the person that says quietly and to himself, there is no God. In other words, Perhaps with their mouths they may proclaim, God is real, I believe in him, he sent his son Jesus Christ. But in their heart and with their actions they proclaim something very differently. I imagine some of you in here have read the book Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. 
If you haven't, I commend it to you. In this book, Jonathan Edwards talks about the importance of the affections in our life. What are, what are you... What do you have an affection for? You have an affection for your spouse or your children or your or a dear friend. How do you show that affection? Well, you do things for them, right? You you love them with your time or with maybe you give them a gift or or you do something kind for them. In other words, our actions reveal the affections of our heart. We may say we love him, we may say that we adore Jesus, but if our affections are, or if our actions are saying something else, then what Jonathan Edwards is saying, well, then no, you don't really love him. Your affection is for something else. Your affection is showing your depravity. So we read in the first half of verse 1, right, it's not just the outspoken atheist that says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. You see, the unbelief that David is speaking about here, it's, it's, it's much more subtle, and I think it's much more common than the outspoken way. Someone may know the right answer. They know who created the universe. They're supposed to say that God is in control of all things, but in their heart they just don't believe that it's true. This can look like an outright denial of his existence, but it may be something even more subtle than that. This is something that you may see in the outspoken atheists of this world, but this person might actually be sitting next to you in the pew on a Sunday, or maybe it's one of us. We say that he is God, and we say that he's the creator, but in our hearts we deny it. <clears throat> There's no corner of the universe or the corner of our lives where God is not there, even in the hurtful things and even in the bad things. The foolish and depraved person doesn't see this. He says, maybe God created, but he's not in, he's not in the business of my life. What do you think? What does the righteous person do? The righteous person is patient. The righteous person believes that God will work things out for good. The righteous person knows that his words and his actions must agree with one another. There can't be a disconnect. The depraved person is deceitful, even deceiving himself. So what are your affections set upon? Have you ever considered that? Well, I, I believe in him, but what are your affections set upon? What do your actions say your affections are set upon? As, as Edwards asks in his book. Charles Spurgeon says this, Let the preacher, therefore, aim at the heart and the affections and preach all the conquering love of Jesus, and he will, by God's grace, win more doubters to the faith of the gospel than any hundred of the best reasoners who only direct their arguments to the head. Spurgeon is saying, look, I'm not denying the use of great argumentation in Christianity, of apologetics, and, and we need to reason through the doubts that people have, but we've got to aim at their affections. What are people affectionate about? Right? Do we plead with people? Do you see how much you've rebelled against a holy God and his perfect expectations? Please believe in him. Do we operate at the affections, or do we just operate towards the mind? What do your affections say about you? The depraved man loves and honors himself, while the righteous man loves and honors God. So number one, the depraved man denies God. Number two, the depraved man disobeys God. We see this in the second half of verse 1 and verse 3. It says, they are corrupt, the depraved man. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
So the depraved man in his heart denies the existence of God, but also he's marked by disobedience. It, it now comes from the heart out into the lives, right? The affections of the heart are revealed in how they live. Lest we think this is describing people that are out there and uncommon to us in here, Paul makes it very clear as he references this in Romans chapter 3 that this is anybody who's under the law. Paul's describing everyone. Apart from God, we are the depraved man of this passage. Apart from him, our affections want nothing to do with him, and our lives bear that out. All of us at some point are radically depraved. And the only reason it may not be so now is because you have been given the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this an overstatement from David? Is David and Paul, I mean... Really, David and Paul, every, nobody does good. Nobody seeks after God. Surely this. Surely you're not thinking about some people. That Okay, I get it when you talk about some, but is, he, is, it, is it true? Is he really saying that apart from God, no one can do anything good? Yes, that is what he's saying. <laughs> R.C. Sproul says that 70% of evangelical Christians, 70% of evangelical Christians, believe that humans are basically good. Basically good in and of themselves. Yet Paul says very concisely in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You may help someone. You may, be a, you may run a benevolent organization. You may give your money away. But if it's not done from a heart of faith in Jesus Christ, then it is sinful. It has to be done from a heart of faith. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that even our good deeds are filthy rags before him. What, is, what looks like goodness to us does not necessarily look like goodness to God. If it doesn't proceed from a heart of faith and a love from him, then it is sinful. It's permeated by sin, as we mentioned in the cup illustration at the beginning. It's tainted. <coughs> so what's the solution? Lauren, my wife, uh, has, has been a nurse ever since we've been married. And uh, before she became a nurse practitioner, she worked as a cardiovascular intensive care nurse. Uh, worked in the CVICU at uh, Children's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. And cardiovascular, obviously, she worked with hearts and, and patients that uh, needed hearts. And she fo her focus was on pediatrics. She had a patient one time. It was this little girl. And she needed a heart transplant. So she was put on the list to receive a new heart. But this girl was extremely sick, just very, very sick. And everything was the result of she needed a new heart. Now, before she could receive this heart, they wanted to make her life as comfortable as possible. So they, they treated her symptoms, which is all they could really do. They would give her medicine to, um, to alleviate the pain. They would try to make her as comfortable as possible. But all they could do until she got a new heart was to treat symptoms. But the real problem was that she needed a new heart. I think you see the illustration here. We can berate if we so choose. We can, we can tell the culture, don't live this way, don't live this way, don't do this, don't act like that. That's all symptoms. It's not the sickness, is it? The sickness is they need a new heart. And the only way they can be given a new heart is through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. That doesn't mean we don't speak out about, against issues and say, don't live like that, it's harmful. God's Word said so. 
But for them to be changed, they must be given a new heart, just like this little girl. And she did receive a new heart. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You see, David makes no exceptions here. There is not one righteous person. You didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because it just kind of, it just all made sense one day. Like you figured it out as if you were putting a puzzle together. You didn't come to Jesus Christ because you were just a little wiser or more crafty than someone else. You came to Jesus Christ because he literally gave you a new heart. A heart that desired him. A heart whose affections were then for him. So it didn't deny the existence of God anymore and it now desired obedience towards him. You know, there's a lot wrong with our culture today. (laughs) We could sit around and talk about that for a while. All you have to do is turn on the television in the evening and, uh, and you'll be shown. Something that really strikes me anytime I'm watching television in the evening is that we truly have lost a sense of shame in this culture. We're not ashamed at anything anymore. We're not ashamed of what we say and how we act, what we do, what we think. Any behavior, basically, if you feel shame about, it's, it's what's being imposed on you. It's not what you should actually feel. Shame is a good emotion. It keeps us from doing ungodly things. It drives us to repentance. It reminds us of our need for Christ. Yes, Christ came to remove our shame and guilt of our sin. He certainly did. But it prevents us from walking in paths of unrighteousness once we know him. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, the culture's going to hell. There's nothing we can do about it. We also, on the other hand, don't just capitulate and begin shaping ourselves to whatever the culture says we ought to believe or do. We must call ourselves and others to a truer spirituality. One where we take the Bible and its commands seriously and where we love our culture. Because you believe in Jesus Christ, again, not because you're better than anyone else, because you've been given a grace that others have not. We don't think ourselves better than anyone because we're just as depraved as our non-Christian friend or the non-Christian co-worker that you will see in just a few moments. You've been given grace and forgiveness because of his love for you. The life of faith you now live was not a choice. It was a gift. Have you turned your heart to God? Are your affections for him? And then number three, the depraved man does not seek God. In somewhat a similar vein to our second point, but a little bit different. The depraved man denies God's existence. He disobeys God's word. And lastly, he doesn't even seek after him. There's no inclination towards him. David says the depraved man does not and he cannot actively seek God because he doesn't have an inclination for him. Do you have the physical ability to do something that's right? Yes, we all have the physical ability. You don't have the moral ability to do something that's right in the eyes of God apart from him changing your heart. It has to be given. We are haters of God. We are doers of evil. We have no inclination towards him at all. And things are sinful because they're not done in faith. As one theologian said, fallen, unregenerate people have no good in them and never do any good things. Why am I continually hitting this point home? It's to show you that we are sinners, and out of that we sin. 
There's not some scoreboard that follows you around in life, and as long as your good deeds outweigh the bad, then, then you're okay and you're in right standing before God. It's far deeper. It's far nastier. It's far more debilitating than you ever imagined. Don't you see how important it is then for our preaching and for our witness to this world We've got to share the bad news before people are going to want the good news. Often we skip that part. We just tell you need to be saved. You need to be saved. You need Jesus. And, and they do. Why do they need Jesus? Why do they save from what? Have you ever had someone ask that to you before? I have. What? Talking about being saved, what am I saved from? You're saved from the depravity of the rebellion against God. A doctor has got to convince the patient how horrible the disease is or he or she's going to want the elixir or the antidote or the treatment. He's got to convince them. And we in the church must first be convinced of how deep it runs in our own heart before we'll then want to lovingly share it with others. We aren't asking people to clean up their life. We're not asking them to put away their bad habits. We're a doctor trying to convince people that they're sick and ill and they don't think they're sick and ill. When we get this, we'll see our need for Jesus and hopefully convince others of the same. <laughs> Non-Christians don't seek God because they don't desire him. And we've got to show them that he's desirous because of the problem that we have. Do you see the depravity of your own heart? I'm not asking you to dwell on it every day, but do you see what you have been saved from? Are you reminded, I am a sinner. It's yucky and nasty in there. When, I, when I'm left to my own decisions, I'm going to choose wrongly. I'm going to choose selfishly. But he's changed me. Why are we called to consider our sin? Why do we have a confession of sin so often in our worship services? It's to remind us. It's to humble us. How often have you, when you conquered a sin in your life, or maybe you made a right decision to follow God and not man, what's right behind that decision? Pride. I did it did it. I, fi I finally did it. I finally said no to that. I finally did, did what was right. Right on the heels of doing something godly is your own sin nature. It keeps us humble and it keeps us away from self-righteousness. Is there any hope? Man is so depraved, man is so sinful, I hope that has become clear. The depraved man is also, finally, point four, is offered hope in Christ. Despite all that we have said, we certainly do have hope. Our conclusion is not to throw our hands in the air and say, well, if this is true, I'm so awful, why should I even try? It seems as it would lead, lead us to hopelessness. Well, this doctrine is very important. This doctrine of total depravity is important for many reasons. Number one, it explains why the world is such a mess, doesn't it? While people do all the awful things that they do, we're depraved. It convinces us that it's not good enough to just be a good person. Well, there is no such thing as a good person. And thirdly, it teaches us that part of preaching the gospel is to preach sin and that we are lost and dead in it. We must not leave out the bad news when preaching the good news. If you're like me, I wake up in the morning, I spend some time with the Lord, I, and then, then I get on to a news outlet which is usually a bad idea. <laughs> I'll see what's going on during the night, what, uh, who won what election, what's happening around the world, and, and you, get, you get a little downtrodden. 
You feel some despair. You, you hear another story about ISIS. You hear another Christian being beheaded. You hear another state passing another law affirming behaviors that are expressly against the will of God. Another story about a cross being taken down or a pastor's sermons that have been subpoenaed. Another person who's overdosed from drugs. Another friend who's fallen away from the faith. And it wears on you, doesn't it? The depravity of man wears on you. And it wears on your own soul. And it wears on this world. And it often causes you to exclaim, or I hope it does, as David seems to do at the start of verse 7, O Lord, come quickly. Will you just come again, take us away from all this mess and the depravity of this world, and we cry, we yearn for him to come again. Please make all things new as you've promised to do. Bring this new heavens and new earth that we don't totally understand what it looks like, but man, it sounds great. Lord, come quickly. David desires deliverance. He desires that the Lord would deliver his people. And we too should yearn for the same thing. Lord, would you come quickly. But also in that, you want your friends to come along with you. You want your family members, your co-workers, you want them to turn from their sin just as you have. I hope you do. And praise the Lord that he did not decide to leave us in our sin, that he is coming again. And let us not be haughty and proud. Let us not say, well, I got this figured out and I'm lovable and... You're just as depraved as your next-door neighbor is, but you were given a new heart. Praise be to God for that. I imagine many of you have probably heard this illustration, but I just think it's so good. (laughs) I think it bears repeating. There was a young woman who had been uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, and her doctors had told her that she had three months to live. So she went to her pastor, and she told her pastor the story. Uh, This is what's going to happen to me. So they went through her funeral service. These are the songs that I want, and this is the scripture that I wanted read. This is how I want the day to be. So the pastor said that was just fine. The woman said, but there's one more thing. What's that? She said, this is very important to me. I want you to do this for me. This is really, really important. He said, when I lay in my casket, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Y'all heard this? The young pastor said, what are you talking about? Why do you want to be buried with a fork in your hand? And so the young woman explained how her grandmother, grandmother once told her this story. In all her years of attending socials and dinners, she remembered that when the main dish of the course was being cleared from the table, the person clearing the dishes would say, hang on to your fork because the best is yet to come. The pie is coming, the cake, the ice cream, whatever it is, the best part of the meal hasn't come yet but it's about to. So she wanted in her death to have some sort of a testimony because as you can imagine, as people went by to view her body, what does she have a fork in her hand for? This is strange. And so the pastor, with tears of joy in his eyes, told the congregation, it's because the best is yet to come. Don't mourn for her. She's with her Savior now. Everyone here, the best is yet to come. Persevere. Be encouraged. It's all going to get better. This is not the way that it ends. And he was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, the best is yet to come. The Lord says in his word he is coming again to right all the wrongs and to make all things new. Praise be to God that it's so. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that 
while we are still sinners, you died for us. Not when we looked to you, not when we desired you, but while we were rebellious and, and anything but turned toward, turned toward you. That's when you died for us. That's when you forgave us. That's when you justified us. And Lord, that that would humble us, that that would bring us low. It would remind us of how worthy and holy and good you are. But yet we're also very encouraged that you have given us that worth, that you've, you've found us to be so lovable. And we thank you because it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you give us a heart for those that don't know you, that they would know the same hope that we have, and that you would deliver them from their sins. Lord, would you be with us now as we go back to work or wherever we're going? Would you uh, give us encouragement and joy for the rest of this day? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.